You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. You know, one of the great things about this podcast is that in it, it enables us to connect with people all across North America that share our interest and passion for waterfowl and wetlands conservation. We've spoken with people out on the Pacific Flyway, Central Flyway, Mississippi Flyway, and then, of course, the Atlantic Flyway up and down each of those. We've even ventured into Canada, and eventually we will connect with some people down in Mexico. And so today, you know, I, I take a lot of, I get a lot of enjoyment out of those conversations. A lot of these people are my friends, and I visited a lot of these places and spent some time in, in many of the places that we talk about and today is another one of those occasions where we're going to be going to an area virtually, you might say, uh, where I've spent some time uh, earlier in my career. It's a place that is of great importance to Ducks Unlimited. It's one of our, is within one of our priority landscapes. It's rich in waterfowl history, waterfowling history. And, and it's a place where we have a lot of supporters as Ducks Unlimited. We have a lot of members. We have a lot of hunters. And it's a place where we also have a lot of podcast listeners. I can tell you that as well. So we're going up to the Great Lakes today. And more specifically, we're going to go to the western end of Lake Erie. And we're going to be talking about one of the oldest and best known waterfowl hunting clubs in North America, the Winus Point Shooting Club. And to help me with this conversation, I'm happy to welcome in John Simpson, the manager of the, of the Winus Point Shooting Club and also the executive director of the Winus Point Marsh Conservancy. John, welcome into the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. John, let's start out with you giving us a um, sort of brief background on your personal and professional career and how you wound up at Winus Point. So I grew up in Ontario, Canada, originally Canadian, I guess still Canadian. Um, did graduate, did my graduate research uh, at the University of Guelph uh, on, with Dr. Tom Nudd's uh, waterfowl degree there. Uh, and part of that field work brought me here to Winus Point. So in 2001, I had my first field season here uh, at Winus Point doing research on the breeding, breeding ecology of mallard ducks. And I spent three or four years all over the Great Lakes region uh, researching, researching the duckling survival and habitat use of mallard ducklings across the Great Lakes. And when did you transition to your current role there at Winus Point? So I worked, uh, following my graduate degree, I worked uh, a couple different jobs in Michigan uh, for Ducks Unlimited for a few years, and then uh, also in private wetland consulting. And when I heard that the manager position here was opening up, up I applied and uh, started here in 2008. So this will be, I think, my 13th duck season here at Winus Point. Most of the people that are listening to this, certainly waterfowl hunters, will know that duck clubs across North America have played a very prominent role in the history and success of waterfowl management uh, in this on this continent. 
And these have been, some of these duck clubs have been in existence since the mid 19th century. Uh, Winus Point is, I think you're going to tell us exactly uh, what the case may be, but Winus Point is among, if not the oldest of these of these duck clubs. I, of course, spent some time in Louisiana and there are duck clubs all across that landscape. The same is the, is the case in the California Central Valley. You can go to the Atlantic Coast and find much of the same thing. And so the the marshes of the Great Lakes, and in particular that western end of Lake Erie, is another region where there are a um, it's a has a long history of of waterfowl hunting and the emergence of waterfowl hunting clubs and their important role in conserving and continuing to manage some of the habitats upon which waterfowl depend. Before we started recording, you and I were talking about how we would like at some point to get into a much deeper discussion of all of these issues. So, um, but we're not going to do that today. What we're going to do here is just give a, a brief introduction to Winus Point as one of, as an example of one of one of the very many duck clubs across this continent that have played an important role in waterfowl conservation. Um, this is exciting for me, and we'll get started here, John. And I guess the first thing that I want to do, we're re- recording this here in early November. I wanted to get an update from you on on. Um, the weather conditions there. This is we're in the midst of this cold front that's pushing down through the mid-continent. You there in Ohio are, are right in the middle of your split or, or in the split. So give us an, an update on weather conditions there and how was the um, how was the the first couple of weeks of your duck of your duck season? Yeah, so there's been uh, a couple fronts that have kind of came across the Midwest and I think moved a lot of birds in. Um, we've we just wrapped up the first part, our, the two week first part of our regular duck season, um, and it's probably the best first two week opener since I've been here. Um, tremendous shooting. And I don't know if that's, uh, you know, bird populations or if it's the, the weather or the combination of the both, but it's been great these, these first two weeks. And, uh, we're in the, we're just in the middle of the split right now and we'll open back up here this coming Saturday. You mentioned the, the important role of annual, uh, recruitment to the success, your hunting success there. And, and the Great Lakes are perhaps one of the best examples of a place that derives their their bird from a variety of locations. Obviously, a lot of your your uh, homegrown mallards, uh, homegrown species are going to be really important, certainly early in the season. But you also get a lot of your birds from Ontario uh, and maybe a few farther east. And then you also get some birds from out of the prairies. So, you know, we spoke with Mike Schumer last week. He was giving us an update a bit farther east than where you are. And he was saying that he thinks most of the birds that they that they received, that they were seeing right now, were probably going to be from the prairies because he just doesn't think it's been cold enough in the eastern U.S. to uh, to influence a significant movement of birds out of Quebec and and maybe eastern Ontario into his neck of the woods. So it's, it's kind of interesting uh, to think about. And that may be the case with you as well, where you are there in, in western Lake Erie. I wonder if some of the birds that you're seeing um, are sourced out of the prairies. Do you have any any idea on what you might be seeing there versus local production? Yeah, so we're we're a kind of a real mixing pot here. We we have local birds, and like you mentioned, a lot of Ontario and Quebec and northern birds. So our, our black ducks and mallards, uh, and even blue winged teal, we get a lot from Ontario. Um, 
But we also harvest a lot of gadwall, a lot of uh, green wing and other blue wing teal coming from the prairies, widgeon and pintail that, that are probably all prairie birds. Um, and right now we're seeing great numbers of gadwall and we've been seeing more and more of those every year for the last probably 20 years. Um, so we're, it's, we're lucky in that we're a really good mixing pot here. You mentioned the number of gadwall that you're seeing. That kind of makes me want to speculate that perhaps it speaks of good production out, out of the Dakotas. Certainly gadwall are a prairie bird, and so those are going to be coming from the prairie somewhere. And I know we heard all summer long how things were relatively dry in Canada. So maybe you're getting some of those Dakota birds um, pushing east. That would certainly be uh, certainly be an encouraging sight for hunters farther south. And anytime we have this cold weather, strong cold weather early in the season, you're going to get a good good movement of birds. That's exciting to hear about. You also referenced blue-winged teal, and, and Ohio does have a teal season, so I wanted to back up in time here and ask you how the teal season was this year for you. How was your teal season? Yeah, certainly. We had a great teal season this year, too. One of the, one of, if not the best, uh, you know, since I've been here. Um, we had blue wings, a lot of blue wings they, they, they were here early. And so, uh, the, the teal season is 16 days and our first eight days or so, uh, was all blue wings. It was great. Um, those birds abruptly moved out with a front and then, um, the green wings came in right on time and we finished the season out with green wings. So it was, it was tremendous. Well, that's exciting to hear how things are shaping up for you. You've had good, good success during the teal season. You had good success in the early duck season. And, you know, if things, uh, if, if things affecting Mike Schumer in the Northeast are kind of the same way they are affecting you in a similar fashion, then maybe you still have a push of ducks from the Eastern uh, breeding grounds that will kind of help bolster your numbers for the, um, for the rest of your duck season. So things could look pretty good there for you, uh, assuming it doesn't freeze out on you. <laughs> are you worried about that at all? What are the temperatures like? Yeah, that's just what I was about to say. We, uh, you know, we could really use some more mallards and I'm sure there's a push of those yet to come. Uh, but with these cold fronts and it's really shaping up to be a cold, to be a cold year, um, I'm hoping we stay open fairly late. Actually, we had the the first skim ice that I've seen in the marsh was this morning, um, which is probably almost two weeks earlier than we normally see the first ice. Yeah, let's hope it stays warm uh, a little bit longer there for you. But uh, but anyway, encouraging news thus far. So, John, let's tra- let's transition a bit to our to our discussion about Winus Point. And, you know, I, I guess I guess let's start. I referenced we're, we're talking about an area that's at the western end of Lake Erie, but let's just start with the geography of uh, a bit more on the specifics of the geography. Where is it and what are the primary habitat types that you're looking at there? Yeah, so we are, like you said, uh, on the southwest shore of Lake Erie, kind of between uh, sand or between Toledo and Sandusky, Ohio. Um, historically, there was big coastal marshes that ranged all the way from Detroit around through Toledo and down to, well, really to Sandusky, uh, where we sit. Um, and uh, a lot of those coastal marshes are gone now, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that here in our discussion. Um, but uh, Winus Point, we have 3,000 acres of coastal marsh, diked in coastal marsh that that's, remains here along the shore of Lake Erie. And uh, that's what we're managing, and that's what we're hunting, um, all natural diked coastal marsh. Pretty quickly through these other topics, again, out of necessity to keep from, uh, mainly for my benefit, I'm talking to myself mostly when I say this, to keep us from getting bogged down because I'm the type of person that likes to really dig into the weeds here. So let's just jump right in in terms of a history of Winus Point. Um, when was it founded and what was the, what was the early motivation for that founding? 
So the Winus Point Shooting Club was uh, incorporated in 1856, and that makes it the oldest duck hunting club in North America that's still operating today. Um, there was, like you mentioned earlier, you know, in, in the, the south and uh, along the Atlantic coast, there was clubs that started earlier but are, are gone now. So we're the, we're the torchbearer for the, the oldest duck hunting club in North America. But um, the members, or I guess the guys, the founding members had been hunting here for years before 1856. They had been traveling from Cleveland uh, by horse and buggy, kind of African safari style and uh, camping in canvas tents, uh, right where our buildings are now on a little island in the, in the marshes and duck hunting probably as early as 1840 or the early 1840s. Okay. And so then it was founded in the 1850s and, you know, we will kind of fast forward here a little bit. We have another ongoing discussion within one of our podcast episodes where we're talking about the history of, uh, history and evolution of waterfowl harvest management. I don't think we have uh, aired any of those as of this, as of this recording, but a lot, as part of that discussion, we kind of reflected on what some of the Hunting success probably was back uh, before the turn of the century, uh, back in the late 1800s. And and Winus Point is really unique in that you're you've kept records since the 1850s, since I guess the founding. Mm-hmm. And so tell us, John, uh, a data based uh, data based insight, which I'm pretty excited about, on hunting success back in those days. Yeah, um, we do. We have we have shooting records that the members have kept uh, ever since the late 1850s or right around 1860 was our, our earliest shooting records. Um, and of course, when they started hunting here in the 1850s, you know, spring shooting and no bag limits and, and all that kind of stuff was kind of common practice. Uh, our members fairly quickly restricted themselves to no spring shooting and a 25 bird bag limit. Um, so when you look back at our old records, you don't really see the days where they were shooting hundreds and hundreds of ducks a day, uh, simply because they had their own self-imposed bag limits. Um, but early on, you know, there was a lot more birds and they did really well. And when they, in good years, they shot a lot of ducks. Um, but you know, duck hunting is duck hunting and there was a lot of slow, slow years too. Um, so it kind of, it kind of reflects what we see today, just a greater abundance of birds. John, there is a, a fantastic book out that came out a few years ago that chronicles the history of Winus Point. The title of this book is Winus Point, 150 Years of Waterfowling and Conservation. Uh, people interested in the history of waterfowling would, would do themselves well to pick up a copy of that book. And, and I was uh, flipping through that over the weekend and this morning in anticipation of this, uh, this episode and I thought it was it was certainly noteworthy and it was noteworthy enough to include a reference to it in the book that one of the first written comments in that in that hunting log dating back to the late 1850s was was something to the effect of uh, clear day, beautiful day, ducks not flying. So even mm-hmm. 160 years ago, uh, there are some times when ducks aren't flying and the hunting success is not all that great. So we can take some. Um, some solace in that and that what we're experiencing today have been experienced by waterfowl hunters as long as there have been ducks and people to hunt them. Yeah, for sure. So let's see, John, you mentioned that Winus Point was one of the torchbearers, is a torchbearer for waterfowl conservation, the history of waterfowl conservation there in the Great Lakes and among our uh, the remaining waterfowl hunt clubs, but also in the role that hunt clubs um, began to play in the late 19th century 
whenever we started to notice the decline of waterfowl populations, Winus Point imposed restrictions before some of the before they were in place put in place by the federal government. So, uh, I think you mentioned that spring hunting was uh, was outlawed by uh, by the members of Winus Point. Do you do you recall when that was? What was the date on that spring ban? Oh, so our shooting records start in, let's say, 1860, and there's probably only maybe three or four records of them shooting here in the springtime. And then there's actually written notes in our uh, in the, the meeting minutes of the shooting club, uh, you know, outspoken. Some members were very outspoken about spring shooting. Um, so they ended that practice here anyhow uh, rather quickly. And, and that's something that's worth noting. Um, the... the Yes, waterfowl uh, waterfowl clubs do take birds in the in the fall, and some continue to do so in the spring. But but the members of those clubs are in tune with what's happening with the resource, and this is a perfect example of where the members of the Winus Point Shooting Club noticed that and took action of their own accord to impose impose these restrictions to uh, to ensure help ensure that birds remained around for future generations to enjoy and to pursue and to, um, and that's, that's kind of where some of our conservation efforts began. And so mm-hmm. uh, Winus Point and its members and all the other clubs that, uh, that kind of fell in line and continued to do good things for waterfowl and, and make responsible decisions, both from the, in terms of harvest as well as habitat management, certainly deserve some credit in that regard historically and, and continuing to this day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the duck hunting clubs across the country have always worked closely with the conserv- you know, government and non-government conservation organizations to, to kind of shape and form rules and, and laws and, and the conservation guidelines that we all follow. And that's been the case here ever since the 1800s. We've worked with the state. Um, even right up until this current year, you know, helping, helping with research that informs, you know, conservation actions. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. State and flyway wide. John, let's move on to talk about some of the historical changes in the waterfowl habitats there, uh, there at Winus Point. And that, that area, the marshes of that region are obviously heavily influenced by lake levels in, in Lake Erie. And I would, I would imagine it's fair to say that is the historically the driving influence of the extent and type of waterfowl habitats in that region. But like every other landscape where uh, where humans have settled, we have made some changes, and some of those changes uh, invariably have some some negative consequences for some of the wild places that were there before we before we settled. And the marshes around the Great Lakes, certainly Lake Erie, is is a great example of that. So, John, just briefly talk about that how how lake levels have changed through the years, and how the other activities in that region. Uh, have influenced uh, have influenced the marshes of, of that area, and as I'm saying this, I'm reminded that the, the the important waterfowl habitats there in in that region were not historically just limited to the rim of Lake Erie. You can 
uh, do a, a go into a long history about the Great Black Swamp that once extended far inland uh, from the lake. But uh, but anyway, give us a brief history on that, the important waterfowl habitats and how lake levels and other factors may have changed those. Sure. Yeah. Well, when when the founding members started hunting here in the 1800s, um, you know, the, the marshes, there was hundreds of thousands of acres of coastal marshes along the shore of Lake Erie and the, and the Delta, I guess I'll call it a Delta here, the river mouth of the Sandusky River and, and Muddy Creek where they come together at Winus Point. Um, that had really clear water and big beds of wild rice and big, wet, big beds of wild celery. And uh, so we had canvas back and, and redheads in great abundance. And that's what the members came here to hunt. And you can see that in our historic shooting records from about 1860 to almost up until 1900, the, the bag that the members were harvesting was 50 to 60% uh, canvas backs and redheads at that time. Um, and you mentioned the Great Black Swamp. That was the watershed, you know, the, the, the rivers that feed Western Lake Erie, the Great Black Swamp was a great forested wetland that extended for a million acres all the way into Indiana. Um, and that's that entire wetland was cleared and drained and settled for agriculture from about 1860 to about 1885 or so. Um, and then at the same time, common carp were introduced by, by ironically enough, by sportsmen, including the duck hunting clubs along the, the shore of Lake Erie. They introduced common carp into the, the ecosystem. And so the sediment loads from the agriculture um, and then the carp actually rooting up vegetation um, really very rapidly changed the marsh ecosystem. So the clear water was replaced by really turbid water. The wild celery and the wild rice, um, you know, died out and was gone. Um, the carp would, were able to root up emergent vegetation and we started losing big chunks of marshland every time there was a high water event or a storm in Lake Erie. Um, and it really happened quite quickly because you can look at our shooting records and you can see how many canvas back and redheads we were harvesting up until 1900. And then from 1900 until today is essentially no canvas backs or redheads at all in our shooting records. So that, that change in the habitat occurred very quickly. And that change in the habitat, as you've, as you've just alluded to there, results in a change in the species composition. I think there's an entire chapter dedicated to that in this book, talking about the shift mm -hmm. from, from divers to dabblers. Um, yep. And, you know, so, John, I remember when I was at Ohio State, the Western Lake Erie and Winus Point in particular was sort of a, a training ground for some of our, our uh, our, our classes, our lab trips, uh, field, field trips would take us there and we would be exposed to, um, well, what is currently a, a good chunk of that is, is sort of walled off, you might say, levied off and you have big rock breakwaters. And, and that's a reflection of a couple of things uh, related to, to, to high lake levels. So kind of tie that part of it together. I know that, um, so for those people that um, that may not be familiar with sort of the, the functioning of the marsh and the geology of that area. And like, how do we end up today with a lot of those marshes impounded um, for, for the purpose of management? 
Sure. Yeah. So, well, well, I, I gave the, I set the backstory of, uh, you know, the, the changes in the marsh and the changes in the water clarity and the carp being able to start, uh, you know, eroding or, or rooting up emergent vegetation. So emergent vegetation all along Western Lake Erie, where there was hundreds of thousands of acres of coastal marsh, that emergent vegetation started being lost in big chunks at a time. Every time there was a there was a northeast storm on Lake Erie. Um, and so at least in the case of Winus Point, as early as 1900, the, um, the members started hiring men with rowboats actually to build stone break walls out along the lake shore um, to stop the lake from washing the marsh away. Um, and then by 1920, at least the members here, they made the decision to um, to, to dike off with a levee, an earthen levee, they diked off um, a half, one half of our property. So the whole northern shoreline of our property, they built a five mile earthen dike. Um, and in the minutes, the meeting minutes of the Winus Point Shooting Club that year, it specifically says they were building the dike to exclude the carp and to exclude the turbid water. Um, and so that's how we ended up with these, these diked systems that we have now. Um, and essentially, in all of Western Lake Erie, virtually every bit of coastal marsh that was never diked in is now gone. And there's there's only about 30,000 acres total remaining in Western Lake Erie, and it's all behind dikes. And if we were to take human settlement off the landscape, we were to think about kind of in, in ecological time frame, uh, historically or without any type of human settlement in that area, we would probably expect those marshes to move inland uh, as, as lake levels increase and then retreat whenever lake levels go back down. But obviously with uh, human habitation, we put structures where we want to live and where we want to do things and uh, to do the things that we, we need to do in order to make a living. And so when we have high level lake levels that begin to encroach on those um, you know, we have to have to wall those off, so to speak, if we're going to retain those those marshes. It's not as though we can allow the lake levels to really migrate in and then retreat uh, across much of that landscape. There might be a few places remaining along the coast coastlines of the Great Lakes where that is possible, but those are going to be few and, and far between. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, certainly here. I mean, here locally, we're, we're in this flat clay plain landscape, and you brought up a good point with the development. We actually have dikes on the, the shore side of our marshes, but we also have dikes on the backside of our marshes now too. And those dikes allow, uh, you know, agricultural producers to farm inland from us. Um, so the, the, the marshes are really constricted. We're in a period of high water right now where if those dikes weren't in place, probably a quarter to a third of the entire township that we're situated in would be, you know, knee deep marshland right now. Um, but of course, it's all it's all diked and pumped and still farmed. Let's move to the discussion of the lake levels. What are you seeing right now, um, and how do they compare to to last year? Yeah, so last year we set, or last year Lake Erie set. Uh, I, I can't remember, maybe three or four months in a row. You know, spring through summer, um, they set all time record levels since since water level monitoring has started in Lake Erie. Um, this year, we set another record. I think it was in May. It exceeded last year's record. And then we, we kind of entered the normal seasonal decline that you see every fall. Um, it's still still much higher than, than average, probably two feet above average or maybe close to three feet above at the long-term average. Um, but it's a little more manageable right now than it was this spring and then much more so than it was last year. 
Did those lake levels either last year or this year uh, come close to overtopping your levees? I know if you look back in time to the 1970s, that was one of the kind of the landmark events that led to some major changes there in terms or the major decisions to to really um, fortify in great fashion some of the levees there and dikes around the Winus Point property. Um, lake levels rose so much and then you had a, a storm from the northeast. And I guess for those people that may not be aware, Lake Erie is oriented southwest to northeast. So these strong northeast storms um, will shove all of that water. Lake Erie is a very shallow lake to begin with, and it shoves all that water to the southwest. And you're, it's a bathtub effect. Well, it's a, it's a sesh effect. And it pushes that water to the to the southwest and into those Lake Erie marshes. But have you had have any of the water levels here the past couple of years come anywhere close to overtopping the levees that, that are there now? Yeah, so for the last five years or so, the lake has been above average. And when we get those northeast storms, um, it's come very close to overtopping our dikes. Um, and then and then it's also caused a lot of damage to the outside, you know, the protective riprap that's on the outside of our dikes. Um, we haven't had any uh, overtopped, thank goodness, um, partly because we were we were lucky and didn't have any big northeast storms in the last two years. So, so I'm grateful for that. But, um, you know, we, it's continuous maintenance. You mentioned the 1970s. That was the last time we had great big catastrophic storms coupled with high water levels and it washed out miles and miles of our earthen dikes that had to be rebuilt. Um, so luckily we're not in that situation right now, but certainly one Northeast storm away from it. I want to move on, John. We're going to have to kind of speed up here. There's a lot more that we could discuss along the way, but the, uh, a couple of additional really critical aspects of what Winus Point has helped has helped accomplish and contributed to in the waterfowl field is in the research and habitat management context. And this is probably well. Let me let me kind of set the stage here. Uh, reading through this book, I was reminded that some of the research efforts there at uh, habitat and waterfowl related research efforts at, at Winus Point really took off in post-World War II, if, if my memory is correct. And that's the case uh, a lot across, well, in the 1930s, but then a lot of the, the on-ground work with people, uh, with graduate students and, and so forth, uh, started to really take off in the late 1940s, post-World War II. And Winus Point is an example of one of these clubs that has played a very influential role, certainly regionally in advancing our understanding of waterfowl ecology, waterfowl habitat management, so give us uh, just a, uh, an overview of that aspect of what Winus Point stands for. And you can, as we get into this discussion, you can reference the Winus, part, Winus Point Marsh Conservancy as well and, and how, it, uh, how it came about to help advance this mission. Sure, yeah. Well, to back up and kind of set the stage with a little background, I mean, I talked about how the habitat changed so drastically from 1850s until 1900. Um, and then Winus, and then all the, all of the local duck hunting clubs, including Winus Point, from 1900 until 1945 or 1950, I mean, we really struggled. And part of that was low bird populations, you know, through the, through the Great Depression and, and that period of time. But um, part of that was also all the changes that had, that had happened here. And the members had a lot of questions. The members of Winus Point had a lot of questions about why things have changed and more, more importantly, what we can do to make our marshes, these, these new diked marshes that they're now 
that they're now dealing with and trying to understand how to manage, um, you know, how to make those better for waterfowl. So um, the president of the club at the time in, in 1948 decided that we would be best served if we had a professional biologist on staff that could conduct research that would directly feed back into our management, um, like an adaptive management setup, really. And so they hired a, a man by the name of John Anderson. And uh, John had been working with Frank Belrose for the Illinois Natural History Survey. And um, they hired him in eight, 1948 and they sent the Winus Point, sent him up to the Delta Marsh for another year of training before he came back here in 1949. And um, when he got back, John started what became the Winus Point Research Committee, which was a three, three-way partnership um, between Winus Point, the uh, Ohio Division of Wildlife, and then Ohio State University. And really what it, what it was was a graduate training program um, whereby we would sponsor graduate students to conduct research here at Winus Point that fed back into the management of coastal marshes. And John, that, that arrangement included, at least through the years, it included summer interns. It also included, as you mentioned, the support for graduate students. And that, that support has, has resulted in or has assisted in the training and education and advancement and professional careers of dozens and dozens of people that, that today are active in waterfowl conservation in the Great Lakes region as well as across North America. Um, I am I am a fortunate beneficiary of some of that support. Uh, my my work at Ohio State was was supported in part by the Winus Point uh, Marsh Conservancy, and so you know I certainly fortunate in that regard to be part of of that group. The the names on that list is is long and distinguished, and so that's that's pretty cool. Uh, for me personally, but also, again, shows the important role that that waterfowl hunters and their investments play in, in advancing this overall uh, mission of waterfowl wetlands conservation. So, John, tell us about the Marsh Conservancy, Winus Point Marsh Conservancy, uh, how it differs from the shooting club, when it came about, and what uh, what was the thinking behind it? Sure, yeah. So, the, the, the research committee that John Anderson started uh, in the 1950s, I mean, obviously there was a real need for that now or then, and there still is now that program really took off. And you mentioned the success of our graduate student program. And I think we're, we have to be approaching close to 200 students now that have came through Winus Point, you know, either with full on the ground support here or with, uh, uh, you know, just, just some logistical or financial support. Um, but that program just kept snowballing and growing and growing and getting bigger and bigger. Um, we, the Winus Point also started getting involved in uh, some conservation actions, particularly in placing some protective easements on our marshes to, to protect those in perpetuity. Um, and then we also got involved in community sort of uh, you know, wildlife and outdoor education within the community. And so everything just kept growing and growing to the point that in 1999, um, the, the members of the Winus Point Shooting Club decided they would form the, the Winus Point Marsh Conservancy. And so they established a board of, uh, that includes members of the shooting club and then also members of the academic and professional community, you know, waterfowl and conservation community outside of the, the shooting club um, and incorporated the Marsh Conservancy in 1999. So. So I wear two hats here. I'm the, the director of the 
Winus Point Marsh Conservancy and the manager of the, the Winus Point Shooting Club. And so those two organizations work together uh, on many things and then obviously have, have some individual goals and, and uh, differences too. Winus Point is in pretty rare company in that regard where there's this historical waterfowl hunting club that has uh, that is sort of carved out a very important role for itself in supporting research to advance their own mission, but also that th- that research informs habitat efforts, conservation effort, efforts in a much larger geography. And then then also the the deliberate step to create a nonprofit organization specific to that mission. You don't see that very often. I think there are a few other examples across the across the country. I think there's an important uh, there's an important role for that. I think there's an opportunity for a lot more of that to occur and and I hope we see that kind of going forward in various ways, not only just through through research, but also just education about wetlands and waterfowl conservation. And so uh, just another way in which Linus Point has been one of those leaders in this uh, in, throughout this entire field. So uh, I extend my appreciation to to Linus Point, the the founders and the people that had the foresight to, um, to, to go forward with that initiative. It's a pretty great model to operate under, really. I, I think it, I think it works well. The two organizations have so many closely aligned goals that it, that it really works well to to function in that way. John, I want to transition here uh, to a brief discussion about habitat management at Winus Point. Uh, we're going to have to wrap this up here pretty soon, but but let's just talk about the the type of habitat management that is dominant there on your, uh, on your property. I, I don't know if things have changed since, uh, you know, since I was there, I, coming from Mississippi, I was most familiar with moist soil management, that type of management that's d- designed to maximize the production of food to benefit waterfowl during fall and winter. Um, but whenever I came to Ohio and started to visit some of the sites there around Lake Erie and Winus Point in particular, I began to see alternative types of management. Tell me how things are going there with respect to your habitat management. And um, yeah, let's just start there. What, what are the primary types of habitat management in place? Sure. So I mentioned earlier, we have about 3,000 acres of, of dike coastal marshes, and that's divided into roughly 20 management units. And so we have water level capabilities to, to raise and lower water levels within those marshes. Um, virtually all of our marshland is managed as natural wetland habitat. And we kind of take a holistic approach to managing our marshes. Um, you mentioned moist soil management, and we certainly do some moist soil management. Um, but it's probably a little, uh, what we do with moist soil is probably a little different than, than uh, some other places around the country. We're much less intensive. So annually, about a third of our property is in moist soil. And uh, when we do moist soil, we basically in springtime, lower the water level to a very shallow water level. And then really we let the climate conditions of the growing season dictate what happens after that. So it, it may naturally evaporate quickly. It may, if we have a little more rain, it may naturally evaporate out much later in the growing season. Um, or if we have a wet year, it may not dry out at all. Um, so we really kind of let the climate uh, drive our, what happens in our moist soil units. And then the remaining two thirds of our marsh is, is either in moderate level, uh, like hemi marsh management. So we have knee knee deep or thigh deep water uh, with cattails and emergent vegetation. And so we're providing year round habitat that way. 
um, or we're in a deeper water cycle where we're trying to mimic some of those high water years that would naturally occur in the Great Lakes. Um, and that kills back an undesirable vegetation. And it also grows a lot of submerged aquatic vegetation that has a lot of benefits for the shooting club and attracting waterfowl in the, in the fall too. John, that was one of the things that, that, that I took away most notably from my exposure to the way you do marsh management there at, at, um, at the club is just the effort that goes into controlling invasive species such as Phragmites and purple loosestrife. Those were two of the ones that were most prominent at that time. There might be some others that have kind of started to rear their ugly head, but the, the management efforts that you put in place are, are done in some cases as much to help control those invasives as they are designed to, to really promote or maximize the production of, uh, of food resources. Is that still a fair statement? Yeah, that is. Yep. Especially in, in some of our deeper water uh, growing season management, a lot of those actions are designed at um, either restricting or killing back Phragmites or um, you mentioned new flower or new invasive species. We're dealing with a, a species of plant now called flowering rush. Um, and so we're learning how to manage that as well, too, with, with our, uh, our management techniques and our water level management. I know whenever I was there at Winus Point or there in Ohio, your club stood out also in somewhat of a unique fashion because unlike a lot of, a lot of other clubs of the day, and certainly that continues to this day, agricultural grains are not a huge component of your management. Now, I think you, know, you may have started to incorporate some of those through the years. I remember distinctly buckwheat being one of the uh, one of the grains that was produced in that regard but is is the do you still use agricultural grains on just a very small percentage of your property yeah a uh, very very small percentage of our property um, probably well in some years zero percent of our property on uh, some years maybe you know less than five percent um, and if we do any planting these days of, of agricultural grains it's usually associated with invasive species control so we've so we'll do for example a uh, herbicide treatment of a phragmite stand that we want to remove and then we'll follow that up that growing season with uh with a buckwheat planting or something that that's designed just to kind of give that one more herbicide application uh and and sort of fill that void while natural vegetation takes back over in that area i found it really enjoyable to go there during the summer and be able to hear rails and all sorts of other water birds using this these this diversity of wetland types um and, and, and I don't know, to me, it was just, it was a pretty unique place. You don't see that type of holistic wetland management very often. And, and I know, uh, read this in the book also, that, that you've been very successful in terms of how that type of management translates into hunting success. I don't want to go into too much of that here, but that's certainly a discussion for a later time where and it's kind of goes against the conventional wisdom that in order to kill ducks on a duck club, you have to maximize the production of, of carbohydrate rich, calorie rich foods. But that's not the case all the time. Certainly when you start to view things from a landscape scale and you have other habitat uh, resources available in proximity to you, Winus Point has done, a, in my opinion, a fantastic job managing wetlands in a more natural state. I know there are, it's not to say that all other duck clubs, there's no other duck club that does this. There are, there are many, many that do, but Winus Point is one that I've actually seen in person uh, through the years and I've been very impressed with that. Do you take pride 
in in being a bit different in that regard, John? Yeah, you know, uh, I I mean, personally, I take a lot of pride in it. I know our membership takes a lot of pride in that too. That you know, that comes back to sort of having these two organizations. And I mentioned that you know they have common goals, but they also have goals that that don't necessarily always align perfectly. Um, but our marsh management reflects that you know we want to provide food and shelter and habitat for for ducks in the fall but we also want to provide year-round habitat to meet the life cycle needs of of ducks and all the other wetland creatures that are here in western lake erie so um you know we take a lot of pride in in tailoring our our waterfowl management in that direction and uh, our members really want to when they come here in the fall they that's the kind of habitats they want to hunt in um, that, that's part of the experience here as well. And I also remember that those types of habitats are are wonderful for bullfrogs in the in the uh, in the fall. Whenever that, or maybe it wasn't in the fall. I forget when the when the season ends for frogs. But I've been the I've been the fortunate beneficiary of some of those uh, some of those frog legs that came out of that marsh. Do y'all still uh, do y'all still take some of those every year? Yep, yep. Frogs, snapping turtles, crayfish—you know, all the all the good year-round uh, things that are out here in the marsh. And there, and one of the one of the important rules that I remember with regard to the uh, with frogging is that you don't allow, or did not at the time. I'll ask you if this is still the case. You do did not allow uh, spears or gigs, frog gears. You had to catch them with your hand. Is that still the case? That's still how we do it today. Yep, we catch them by hand. That's one of the, my, my most memorable experiences from my time at Winus Point. So I feel very fortunate to have uh, had that opportunity. So, um, well, John, I, I think we probably need to wrap this up. Each of these things that we've talked about, we can dissect in probably in, in much more detail and talk about them for at least a half hour in length. And and I hope we have an opportunity to do that. You and I have talked about getting together sometime next year in person and having a more detailed discussion about this because there's certainly certainly rich history, deep history that we could cover and a lot of questions that are running through my mind um, related to habitat management, hunting success, research through the years, or early regulations, uh, just a wealth of information. Winus Point is one of those rare places that has long history and record of that. So, Thank you. And thank you. Uh, thanks to all the members of the shooting club, as well as the supporters of the Marsh Conservancy uh, for the work that that everyone there has done for over 150 years in every aspect of the role that you play in waterfowl conservation uh, and helping to inform and advance us there in the there in the region and, and even broader. So thanks a ton, John, for joining us here and look forward to catching up with you again in the future. You're welcome. Thank you. A special thanks to our guest on today's show, John Simpson, manager of the Winus Point Shooting Club and executive director of the Winus Point Marsh Conservancy. We certainly appreciate his time and, and expertise in, in discussing a very important topic and a very special place in the history of waterfowl conservation and waterfowling. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does with these podcasts and getting them edited and out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.
You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 